If you have a Bible with you or a phone or an iPad, you can make your way to Psalm 51. Yes, that is actually in the Old Testament. Yes, some of you might think that I don't think there is an Old Testament. There is. We've been in Matthew forever, and now we're actually starting in a new year, and we're going to take some time looking at Psalm 51 this morning. So as, uh, as we prepare to, to, to look at the passage today, I want to kind of give you the broader kind of scope of what, what's happening this month. So you saw probably as you walked in on the bulletin on the front, the word preparations. And, and uh, so over this next month, um, we're going to take some time on Sundays to, to address some different areas that are really uh, at a personal level and then as a ch- at a church level as well on, on preparing for the change and the things that God wants to bring in our, li- in our lives and in our church this year. So if you've been here for the last 18 months to two years, you know, we've, we're continually going through a lot of transition. God is in the process of reinventing us. Uh, now, part of that process will probably happen the next four to six months, uh, and that is moving from this location to the runway location, which will be wonderful. But we know that doesn't define us as a church. That's simply the vehicle that God uses for what he wants to accomplish through us. But because of that, we know that this, this is a significant change in the life of our church. To, this has been our home uh, base for over 20 years and now moving to a place that's different and a place that we own and, and that God has opened doors for. It's, it's tremendous. But, but there's so much more that God wants to do in us this year. And so it's important for us at the beginning of a new year to take some time to prepare ourselves for what God wants to do in us. And so uh, this morning we'll, we'll look at Psalm 51, but I want to encourage you next week is a really important Sunday, not that any other Sundays are not important, but we're going to take some time to do some specific things for our church family about focusing ourselves for the future God has for us, as well as some things about t- looking back at last year and doing some kind of general housekeeping things as a church. So, so if this is your church home, it's really important that you are present next week so we can all be on the same page moving forward. So this morning, before we jump into, into Psalm 51, I, I want to just talk about what, what all of us have been probably thinking through and, and dialoguing about. Even during our greeting time, you know, you're supposed to share your resolutions that you've, you know, you've already made or you're planning on making. How many of you have made a resolution in the past? Not even this year, but you've ever made like a New Year's resolution. How many of you have failed at a New Year's resolution? Okay, it's usually the same number of hands, right? What is a resolution? It is our greatest intention to bring about change in our lives with our own means and our own ability. That's what a resolution is. And every year, that rhythm culturally plays out at the beginning of the year in January. Our culture always thinks about, okay, what change do I need to bring in my life? What do I need to do differently this year than I did last year? In fact, they, they've done studies in a poll recently said that about 60% of all Americans make a resolution, at least one, if not multiples. And of those 60%, they say about 30% of those resolutions have to do with weight or fitness, Anybody been watching TV at all the last couple of days? You notice the commercials change when the calendar changes? So I've seen a lot of fitness, a lot of Weight Watchers, a lot of gyms, you know, all that. It's like, well, you know, now it's time to stop eating all of what we've ate over the month of December and gained our 5 or 10 or 15 pounds. And now it's time to make changes in our life. Also, the study shows that, that about 15% of the resolutions that we make have to do with finances or debt. I'm not going to be in debt anymore. I'm going to get out of debt. I'm going to spend money differently. I'm going to budget for the first time in my life. All these great intentions. Another 13% are personal improvement. How do I make myself a better person? 12% are, have to do with addictions. 5% have to do with jobs or careers, goals related to those things. And in, in this study, it was interesting. They said that less than 1% of all resolutions had anything to do with drawing closer to God. Less than 1%. Which is interesting because you and I, if, if, if you know who Jesus is, 
then one thing you and I understand, any change of anything of substance in our life that changes only comes through the transformation of God's presence in our life. How many know that's true? Yet he makes the bottom less than 1% of the list. But our intentions are what? To change. That's what a resolution is. In fact, if you compare what we're going to talk about today to resolutions, we're going to talk about really what the opposite of a resolution is, is this thing called repentance. See, because what a resolution is, is it's a means for me to change myself this year. I'm going to take these steps. I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to do whatever. I'm going to read this book. I'm going to change myself, whereas repentance actually is the means for God to change us. It's completely opposite. Resolutions have to do with you and I taking control of our lives. Oh, things got out of control. I I spent too much. I ate too much. I didn't do this. I didn't do that. So now I'm going to take control of my life. Repentance is actually relinquishing control of your life to God. Whereas resolutions are changing or modifying the outside of who we are, repentance has more to do with what God is doing internally in us and transforming us inside. Resolutions are modification. Repentance has to do with transformation. Very different things. And what I'd like you to do this morning is we're in Psalm 51. We'll look at, at, at the whole chapter together. But, but really when we come to a new year, and this is true not just of, of 2015. This is true of any year that we come to. That you and I have an opportunity. There really is you and I come to a fork in the road. And we have a choice of which path we're going to choose to take this year. We're going to take the path of resolution, which you might even not use that term. You might not even think about resolutions. But in your mind, you're trying to think of how this year is going to be different than last year. So you're already moving down that road. I'm going to ask you to pause and consider the other road in this fork in the road that you and I need to consider, the other path. And that is this path called repentance that really what you and I will understand about where it eventually leads us to is where we actually want to be. Because if you're like me, if you've, if you've made a resolution before, usually it ends in what? Disappointment, frustration, you're, you're mad at yourself because you didn't keep it. You know, usually by the end of January, most resolutions are done. Maybe at the end of February, if you're really, really good, you make it to June. And if you're like perfect like Jesus, you might make it to next December. But usually what? It usually ends in what? I didn't achieve my goal. I didn't change myself. And then we get back to the same person we were at the end of next year, and we're back where we started. Where repentance actually leads you you and I on a journey that ends right where we're supposed to be, and that's in the presence of God, where true change and true transformation can happen. Because what repentance is, it's making a decision that I'm not going to try to make myself better, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn from the way I used to live. I'm choosing not to live that way anymore, which means I turn from something towards something else. It's a change of direction. And it's something that can transform our lives. If it's a rhythm that you and I begin to practice, especially as a church family, as we come into this year, that this year, I think it's going to even, that we think we've experienced change already. We're going to experience more change. And you and I have to be ready inside. We have to be ready for what God wants to do through us. And part of that process is this thing called repentance. And so I have us in Psalm 51 because what we're going to go through this passage is because Psalm 51 is probably the best chapter or the best passage in all of the Bible on repentance and restoration. And the reason why is because Psalm 51 comes right after David, King David, the king of Israel, his greatest moment of failure in his life. 
And if you don't know the story, many of you are familiar with the story, but David had finally gotten to a place where he had, and we know the story of David, you know, he's, he's the shepherd who ends up defeating Goliath, and eventually he becomes king, and, and he's got this tension with Saul and all these things. And finally he kind of reaches that place in his life where things are the way they should be. And it says in the, in, in the story of what we're about to read, that it says that when you know, the kings would normally go off to war at a time, David decided to stay home. And you can tell within that what was probably going on is David had a sense of self-satisfaction. I've arrived. I've kind of gotten there. The, 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 the army can go off. I can, I can you know, entrust it to my leaders, and we can do what we're going to do, and I'm going to kind of just rest. And that's when he got into trouble. If you know the story, he sees Bathsheba bathing one night on the rooftop, which he probably knew she did that every night because he's the king and he was on the rooftop. He sees her. He lusts after her. He gets her to come to his place. They, they have sex together. She gets pregnant. And then if that's not bad enough, David says, I've got to cover my tracks. So she, he pulls Uriah, her husband, off the front lines of the battle, brings him home, hoping that he will sleep with his wife, and then the pregnancy will be cleared and David won't have to worry about it. Uriah refuses to sleep with his wife because he's a righteous dude that says, I should be with the army. I shouldn't be hanging out here. So he doesn't, he doesn't even go and sleep in the same bed with his wife. David doesn't like that, and you think, finally, David would get the clue. What does he do? He sends Uriah back out to the battlefield, sends him to the front line, has the army withdraw, and they, he, he dies. So in one moment, David becomes a liar, an adulterer, and a murderer. That's a bad day by anybody's stretch. That's, that's horrific failure. And if that's the end of the story for David, that's a very depressing ending. But then we have Psalm 51, which is David's response to the way that God begins to work in him as he turns from his brokenness and his failure. And it's the the pathway that I want to encourage us, not only this morning, but this year, to walk out as individuals as we follow Jesus. So let me just walk through this. There's really, I'm going to highlight seven things or seven steps that David touches on throughout this psalm that I think help us to understand this pathway or this road of repentance. The first one, step one, is that you and I have to remember the context for change. The context for change is not our will, it's not our ability, it's not our strength, it's not our resolutions. The context for change, David highlights in verses one and two, he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David starts out with two really important verses because, remember, David is coming to God after he's come to grips with his failure and his brokenness. And the reason he's come to, to, to understand that, if you know the story, is because God sends Nathan the prophet to tell David a story to get his attention. And finally, David wakes up to the reality of his brokenness. But and when he comes to God, how does he come? He comes understanding God's nature, that God's merciful that God's love is unfailing, that God is compassionate, that God can forgive. Those are the things that David knows about who God is. And so David comes in that context. What context does he not come in? He doesn't come in the context like, I have really messed up and I've got to make it right and I've got to be better and I've got to work harder so God will accept me. That's not in there at all. Because David realizes that he can never be good enough for God to accept him. That's why he, in a sense, throws himself on the mercy and the compassion and the forgiveness and the love of God, knowing that's the context that's going to bring any real change in his life. Because he realizes he can't change his circumstances. He can't change himself. Only God can. 
And that's an important first step for you and I in the process of repentance, of seeing true change in our life, is that you and I can't come to God thinking, I've got to make myself better so that I'll somehow be acceptable to God. That's called religion, and that's exhausting. Because that means that you and I have to think in terms of, how do I make myself better so God's not mad at me? That's our perception of God. Instead of coming under his mercy, his compassion, forgiveness, we go, oh God, your judgment, your, your wrath, all that, please don't, don't, don't bring that on me. Which is what David's saying when he says mercy, but he realizes God's nature is, by nature, God is merciful. And think, I want you just to think about the difference in context. If you and I really believe that God is merciful and compassionate and his love is unfailing, that means when we fail and we come to grips with our failure and we begin the process of repentance, we know that God will accept us because it's not based on our performance, it's based on his choice. And that's huge. Otherwise, what happens is that we start to lose the relational connection with God that we have with him and what we move to is more of a contract which is I have to perform, I have to fulfill certain things in order for God to really accept me so I can be in connection with him. And so you and I start to work our way back to God, try to earn our way back to God. That's less like Christianity and more like The Bachelor on TV, if you've seen the show. That's what ends up happening. You stick a bachelor with 20 women and they all have to figure out a way how they can outdo everybody else to earn his favor and acceptance so they can be the one standing at the end that gets the rose. And if you watch the show, which half of it you can't even watch, your kids shouldn't be watching, but if you watch the show, I mean, the whole thing is, is backbiting and fighting and pretending to be something you're not and working really hard to try to get this guy's attention. And it's never really based on love or compassion or mercy or relationship. It's based on competition and trying to be accepted. It's sad when that becomes the context of our connection with God, that we're working really hard. We know that we've messed up. We know that we've done something wrong. And now we're going to try to make it right on our own so that somehow God will pat us on the back and say, great job. That's why it's always amazing when people, we still, even when you come to Christ, sometimes we still think this way. I got to get my act together before I go to church. I don't know how many times people have said that. Really? You haven't been to church lately because there's a lot of messed up people there. None of us have gotten our act together. That's the beauty of the church. That's the beauty of God's grace. That he creates a context where we can encounter him and he begins to get our act together. He begins to transform who we are. Second step that David outlines for us is in verses 3 through 6 where he he helps you and I to understand we have to acknowledge our failure. So it goes to verse 3, says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in the secret place or that secret place. So what is David saying? David has actually had to come to grips with the fact that he failed. This is important because some of us want change without repentance. We want change without acknowledgement of sin. Change can never happen unless you, come, you and I come fully, honestly before God and come to grips with what we've done in our life. Where we, where we do that very difficult thing of looking in the spiritual mirror of our life and letting the truth be reflected back to us. That is hard to do. That's difficult to do. But that's what David had done for him because God loved David so much he wouldn't let him live in his failure. That's why David receives or God sends Nathan the prophet to get David's attention. 
And it's, it's amazing how Nathan does this because Nathan's a prophet, so obviously people know he's a prophet, but David's the king. David's the one who's in charge. David can order any person to be killed and they will die on the spot. So instead of Nathan walking into David and said, uh, by the way, you are a liar, you're an adulterer, and you're a murderer. He doesn't do that. If you know the story, Nathan comes in and he tells David a story. And he says, listen, he said, there was a rich man and a poor man. And when some guests came to down, the rich man who has all these sheep and the poor man who has one, the rich man takes the one sheep or the one lamb from the poor man and slaughters it for this celebration. And so David hears this story and he sees the injustice and he, gets, he becomes angry because he sees this is not fair that this poor man has lost the only thing he had and the rich man, at the, rich man does it at the poor man's expense. And so David's burning with anger. And if you know the story, then David looks right at, or Nathan looks right at David and says, David, you are that man. What was Nathan doing? He was holding up a spiritual mirror to David. He's saying, take a look. Take a look. Your defenses are down now. I've told you the story. You can't deflect it. Now you're seeing clearly what God sees is true about you. Now you have to acknowledge it. That's now where we get Psalm 51, that, that Nathan has held up that mirror to David. And because of that, David sees clearly for the first time the depth of his sin and his brokenness. All of us need Nathan in our life. All of, us need, all of us need someone who loves us enough to come to us, and you and I have to have the courage to risk and say, I want you to tell me what you see. Do you have that kind of person in your life that, that you can say, I give you the green light to come to me and to hold up the mirror and to show me but what I may not be seeing about my own life? If you and I don't have that person, we're, we're in trouble. But if we do, we need to be willing to say, I, I'm willing to take what you're about to say because I know that you love me and I know that I need to see what I'm not seeing, my blind spots or what I don't want to acknowledge in my life. Do you have that kind of person? When I, I've told a story before when I was playing basketball in high school and I was going up for a layup and I got taken out by another guy and I hit the floor and my chin split open and I didn't realize I, my, I had no pain whatsoever, couldn't feel anything. I thought I was fine. I went to the free throw line and didn't realize I was bleeding all down the front of my jersey and my coach had to pull me off the floor and I remember still getting pulled off the floor. I knew I was hurt. I knew I was bleeding, but I didn't think it was that bad. And I sat down on the bench. And right behind the bench was my best friend's mom in high school. And uh, they had six kids. She had four of those were boys. And so she had a little experience dealing with boys, you know, and cuts and broken bones and scrapes and all that kind of stuff. And so she, she taps me on the shoulder. She goes, turn around. I said, okay. She goes, stand up. So I, I stood up. And, and I had a towel that was kind of like, you know, under my chin. And she goes, she goes, look up. So I looked up and she looked underneath my chin. She goes, yep. I said, what? She goes, you need stitches. And I remember thinking, I don't need stitches. I don't even feel anything. There's no pain. I mean, it's probably just a little scrape, you know. And she goes, nope, that, that needs stitches. And I remember when she said that, my coach had told me it was bad. The players next to me had told me it was bad. But when my best friend's mom said it, I thought, you know, she's pretty smart. She's had four boys, and she's probably seen this kind of thing before. In fact, she's probably been to the ER multiple times. And then I remember when I got into the locker room and I looked into a mirror and I lifted my chin. I'm like, oh my goodness, she's right. And it took nine stitches to, to close up my chin. I couldn't see what she could see. I didn't have her perspective. And for you and I to come to the place where we acknowledge our sin and our brokenness, many times we need somebody in our life that has that perspective. They can look into our life and say, yeah, you know what? You're cut open. You need stitches. There's an issue here that you've got to deal with. 
And that's why it's so important to be in relationship. That's why it's so important to be in a community group or a life transformation group where you're in relationship with people, that someone has the right to do that. Someone has the right to speak into your life. But David is highlighting for you and I that he now sees clearly that he is a liar, that he is an adulterer, that he is a murderer. He sees it. There's no way he can run from it. So he acknowledges it. He sees it. Some of us don't want to see our sin, but in order for us to change, we have to be willing to face what we've done and the brokenness in our life. Third step that David highlights for you and I is in verses 7 through 9, which is that you and I have to embrace God's forgiveness. It's one thing to acknowledge a sin. The next step is embracing God's forgiveness. So David goes on, verse 7. He says, Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let, my, uh, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. So what David is saying is now that he realizes that his sin is before him, he realizes what he's done, now he's asking God to bring cleansing and purity and forgiveness in his life. And he actually uses the word hyssop, which was used in a, the ceremonial cleansing of lepers. That was applied to them, so in, in their leprosy they could be considered clean. Now we know from, from historical things within the scriptures that leprosy was kind of like the worst disease to have in Israel, because if you had leprosy, you were automatically isolated and separated. You were marginalized. You were sometimes put in a colony where all you could be around were other lepers so that you wouldn't spread your disease to anybody else. And in fact, you were so isolated that no one would ever come into physical contact with you. They couldn't touch you because either one of two things would happen. They would get leprosy or they would become unclean and they'd have to go through the process of purification. So you're automatically isolated. And so David uses this term because he realizes that with his sin, he's just like a leper. He's isolated, he's separated, he's separated from God, and he needs God to bring his cleansing. This is the beautiful picture that David is, I believe, unintentionally, he's, he's portraying for you and I. Because when you read through the scriptures, there was one guy that came along that wasn't afraid to touch lepers. Anybody remember who he was? His name was Jesus. When everybody else would stay away from lepers, you don't touch lepers because you might get leprosy or you'll be unclean. Jesus is the only one that comes along and he touches the lepers and he cleanly cleanses them. He cures them from their leprosy. And so now David is saying to God, cleanse me, which means touch me, which means, in, in a sense, the word cleanse me, the phrase literally means unsend me, unsend me, undo what I've done in my life, undo the impact of my sin. Only God can undo the impact of our sin. We can't. David understood that. David, he got that. And he was touched by God, so he experienced this cleansing in him so that that the sin that he had committed, it's not that he forgot that he committed, but the impact of sin was no longer weighing out on him because it was now God's responsibility. God had chosen to forgive him. God had chosen to purify him. And the reason that's important for you and I is that sometimes the greatest challenge, not always, but sometimes the greatest challenge is that you and I hang on to things that God has already let go of in our life. And the enemy does a great job of making us think that God hasn't forgiven us. When we ask for forgiveness, when we turn from what we used to be, he loves to take our past and throw it up in our face and remind us of our failures and make us feel as though we're really not forgiven. And that thing I'm describing is this thing called shame. And shame is motivated by the enemy, and it's his tool and his weapon to keep us away from God. But when we confess our sin, we acknowledge our sin like David did, and we are, we are purified, we are cleansed. We no longer have to have that, but sometimes deep inside, we still feel like the leper. We still feel like the one that God can't touch, that God can't love, that God can't accept. And because of that, we live our lives that way. 
and not knowing that God has already chosen to forgive us. And the power of that is that it's his choice and his ability, not ours. He chooses to do that. And he's waiting for you and I to let go of that. Because just like the lepers, can you imagine to, be, to have leprosy and never have another, another human being touch you and suddenly somebody comes along and reaches out and touches you and embraces you and heals you and forgives you and purifies you and cures you? God, can you imagine? Some of us, we're, we're still feeling things that we did 10 years ago, 20 years ago, that God has already said, you've been forgiven. Now live like you've been forgiven. That's how David moved forward in understanding that. There's a step four that you and I should move forward into too. Because again, we're, we're going down this road. We're, we're way off the road of resolution now. We're on the fork that leads to repentance. And the fourth step that David gives is to experience God's presence again. So verses 10 through 12, pretty famous verses. Songs have been written by these, uh, with these lyrics. David says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. What is David talking about? When David committed adultery, when he lied, and then when he had Uriah murdered, what did also David experience at the same time? He experienced a separation from God. Because of his sin, he might have been in right relationship with God before, but because of his sin, he knew he had lost more than the trust of people, more than Uriah's life. What he had lost was he had lost the presence of God that he had experienced so much throughout his leadership as a king. And because of that, he's crying out for God to bring about purity in his life because he knows with purity comes God's presence because we can't be in God's presence impure. Only right, righteous, pure people can be in God's presence. That's why the beauty of the cross, Jesus takes our sin and then gives us his righteousness in return so that we can be in the presence of God. So David is is crying out for this. Why? Because part of the process of repentance as we're turning is that we find our way back into experiencing what we lost, which is the greatest thing, the greatest loss in sin is God's presence in our life. It's his active work. It's knowing that he's with us. It's knowing that he's working in us. He's knowing that he's constantly present with us, that we sense that, that we feel that, that we know that. That's what we lose more than whatever sin that we commit. And David is once again now beginning to experience that again. Some of us have forgotten what it is to have God actively work in our life. We feel so distant from him. We feel separated. We feel numb. We come to church maybe because it's what we're supposed to do. But there is no passion. There is no life. There's nothing inside of us that we feel like God's actively working. In fact, over a period of time, when that becomes more and more true of us, we just say, forget about church, forget about the Bible, forget about relationship, and we end up walking further and further away from God. And it's because you and I have to understand part of the process of change is you can only be changed when you and I are experiencing the presence of God. And the way we experience the presence of God is through this thing called repentance, which leads to forgiveness, which means I get to be back in a right relationship with God again. And for some of us, that's what maybe this year is about, is actually realizing I've lost something more than just my failure. I've lost that connection with God that I once had, that he desired for me to have. And you and I can regain that. David regained that through this process that we're walking through. Can you remember in your life of something that you forgot, but then when you rediscovered it, you realized how much you had forgotten? You realized that maybe you didn't even know what you were missing because it had been such a long time since you felt that? It's the same thing with God's presence. Some of us wouldn't even really know what to expect because we've been so distant from him. 
One of the things that I was not ready for when we moved to Oregon was the fact that Oregon is a lot colder than California. Now, I knew that it rained a lot, and people would warn us, and we went up there on vacation, and we were there in June, and it rained almost the whole time. So I knew it rained. In fact, being born and raised in California, I was ready for some rain. Hadn't seen a whole lot, but I was ready for rain. So when we got there, it rained and rained. In fact, I think like the first probably, we caught, caught in probably about a third of the way through, there were 35 days of measurable rain in the Portland area. That's a lot. You know, remember 40 days is what it took to flood the earth? We were just short of that, okay? And then you, in, in Oregon, the way it works is that you get, you don't get like long stretches of dry periods. You get what are called sun breaks, which is when a cloud goes by and there's a hole in it and the sun comes through for about 15 minutes and then it goes away. Anybody been from the Northwest? I didn't know what a sun break was. But what I wasn't ready for is that when it rains in Oregon, you see, when it rains here, it's like 50 or 60 degrees and we all freak out when it gets to 50. It's like, oh my gosh, it's freezing. In Oregon, when it rains, it's 30 and 40 degrees. The worst weather possible is 34 degrees and raining. And that happens a lot in Oregon. And so we would go through long stretches where I know when we, we got past November and December, you would never, ever, ever, ever have hope of ever seeing 70 degrees again until maybe the end of March into April. I'm not kidding. That's that strange. You're just like, okay, we're hunkering down, we're hibernating, it's cold, it's wet, it's dark. It's Oregon. That's, if you're going to Oregon, you're like, man, I really thought Oregon was a great place. The ducks are great, okay? That's a football team if you don't follow college football anyway. But so I wasn't ready for that. And so what, what we started, watch, Kim and I started watch, watch happening to us is what all other Oregonians would do. When they would go on vacation during the winter, guess where they would go? California or Arizona. No one would stay in Oregon. I couldn't figure out why. Now I know why, because it's cold. And every year during spring break, Kim would come down here, and sometimes I couldn't get away because things with the church. And so probably about a third of the time, I was at home and she was down here. And there was one time it actually snowed in March took a picture and sent it to her. I'm like, this sucks. Just honest. This, it was, I said, she took a picture, sent it back, standing on the seashore, looking at the sun with 70 degrees. I'm like, this is not fair. (laughs) But I remember one of those trips, I got to come down. And so we had left, you know, soggy, cold Oregon, come down and it was Santa Ana's that kicked up. So, you know, that means it's like 75 or 80 at the coast. So we're out in Oxnard. We're, We're actually standing right on the, on the shoreline, on the beach. And I remember we were just walking and I just stopped. And I just looked up, and I'm like, ah, I can feel it. And I, it was, people probably looked at me on the beach kind of strange. They're like, oh, he's probably an Oregonian, right? So I'm just standing there, and I, honestly, I'm like, I couldn't remember the last time that I had felt the warmth, not of a heater or a fireplace, but of the sun. Of standing there and actually feeling my entire body be warmed by the sun. And it was, it was a strange sensation because... The heat from the sun is a whole lot better than anything artificial inside. And I just stood there for a while and thought, how refreshing this is. It's like, this is not fair. Kim got to do this every year. I didn't get to do this every year. But just standing there. I want you just to think about God's presence. For, for some of us, it's like that. You, you've been in a really long winter. And you've experienced a lot of cold and damp and dark. And you, you haven't been able to be in His presence because... You've been, you've been following the path of resolution, which leads to more failure and more frustration and a cycle that just repeats itself every year. God wants you to walk down the road of repentance, which leads eventually back into his presence, which is where he wants us, us to be. A few more steps. The fifth step that David highlights is in verse 13 through 15, which is to rediscover our purpose in all this. 
So David goes on, he says, verse 13, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, that, your, that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are uh, God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, my mouth will declare your praise. So David like shifts. So he's going from, okay, God's merciful and he's compassionate. I have to acknowledge my sin and now I'm beginning to experience the presence of God somehow in my life. But then he realizes that it's not just about his forgiveness, about his restoration. It's about a bigger purpose that God has through David. That as a result of his failure and the process of repentance that leads to restoration, David now becomes a beacon of God's glory and his praise for people to look at and say, wow. That's what David is saying. He says, listen, I'll teach transgressors. I've walked the road of a sinner. Now I can teach others that there is hope beyond their sin. There is restoration. There is the presence of God again. And what's amazing is when David writes this, I'm convinced he doesn't even have, I know he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but he doesn't even have an idea of what he's saying. See, what David's saying is my testimony is a testimony of God's grace, God's restoration, that will be a a demonstration for other people to turn their attention to God. David doesn't even know what he's writing. Do you know how many millions of people over the last thousands and thousands of years have read Psalm 51 and have walked through the process of repentance and restoration because of David's failure? We can't even count how many. David has brought glory to God through his failure because of Psalm 51. And millions of people, if not maybe billions of people, I don't know, over the the span of thousands and thousands of years since David wrote this, that people have looked at David's life and seen his failure, but they've seen his restoration and they've said, there is a God. See, you and I have to understand that when we fail and God wants us to walk through repentance that leads to restoration, even though that part is about us, the ultimate outcome isn't about us. It's about the story God is writing through our lives. It's about this thing that we struggle with, that we did last Sunday, if you were here, called testimony, which is powerful. It's our story of God's redemption in our life. In fact, that's the thing that transforms people, the things that gets people's attention more than anything is when you articulate and you show people what God has done in your life because it puts flesh on the gospel. You can stand up and you can tell people about the gospel. You can read through the gospels and you can even give a Bible to people, which is wonderful to do. But sooner or later, they're going to say, give me flesh and blood. Show me how this works. And when they look at your life, and then so many people think, oh, I don't, I've never been a, a liar, mur- adulterer, and murderer all in the same, you know, couple of days. That's, I haven't done that. I'm not quite to the caliber of David's failure and his restoration. But your story is your story. Your story is what God is writing through you, and your story will be a demonstration to other transgressors of God's redemptive purpose in your life, if you'll tell it. Come on, I know where I'm coming from. I was saved at six years old. I mean, how much sin can you commit in six years, right? I don't have this long list of, you know, horrific things that happened. I did bad things since I became a Christian, but God's grace has covered my sin through Jesus' death on the cross. We all have stories. We all have a journey that, that that's why it's, it's important for us to let those things get out so you'll never know what you say about your journey that might change somebody's perspective of God because they saw it in you. What God wants from us through the process is to be a reflection of who he is. Again, it's not about us. It's about him. And our redemption, our restoration, our change, our transformation is just 
a billboard for who he is. It's a reflection of who God is. It demonstrates his light into people's lives. And if you and I would see ourselves as a mirror or a reflector that just reflects to people, then you and I would realize how important we are to God's purpose in the world. There's a, a beautiful lighthouse on the Oregon coast that's called the Hasida Lighthouse. And it's amazing, just like any other lighthouse. It's, you take this amazing concept of taking light and then through refraction and reflection, you focus it in a way that it becomes more powerful than itself. So that, that, that lighthouse there has a 1,000-watt bulb. Now, that's more than your average household light bulb that you're going to put in your lamp. But it's not any more powerful than any of these spots. These spots right here are 1,000-watt bulbs. Tony Eske told me this. I don't even know that. I don't really check the wattage or the, you know, on our bulbs. But, so it's 1,000. Each one of those is 1,000 watts. They take a 1,000-watt bulb in this lighthouse and through reflectors and mirrors and glass and everything, They get it so focused and so bright that it can shine 21 miles out to sea. 21 miles. And the only reason it ends at 21 miles is because that's when the curvature of the earth starts to take effect. It would go further. That's like if you drove like to Burbank or maybe even to Glendale or to Pasadena and I took one of these spotlights and I shined it that direction. You go, oh yeah, I can see it. That's kind of crazy, isn't it? It's taking that much light and focusing it in such a way and reflecting it so powerfully that it can do that. In fact, it's so focused and so powerful, this 1,000-watt bulb, that when we went on a tour of it, it was interesting. They, had, they have this screen that they put up behind it, not where the ocean is, but behind it on the hillside where the trees are, that when they maintenance it and they have to have it on and it's not rotating and the, the bulb and where the reflectors are are pointing away from the ocean... It's so potent and so powerful that literally that light has caused the trees behind the lighthouse to burn. That's how powerful it is. It's almost like a laser. So they devised this screening system so that if it's on and it's facing backwards, it's not going to burn anything. That's powerful. That's 1,000 watts. 21 miles can start a forest fire. 1,000 watts. Think about the power of your testimony. Think about what God can do with what you think is just little. God can do incredible things if you and I realize that this is about reflecting who he is to people. People that you know, they know your story, they know your journey, they know your failures, they know what you've gone through. When you share how God is redeeming you and how you've turned your your life from what you used to be to what God wants you to be, and he's bringing his cleansing in you and he's purifying you and, and he's bringing change in your life, they go, oh, now I get God. Now I understand. That's why, please don't bring people to church to help them find, find God through the pastor. Tell them who God is right where you live. That's so much more powerful than trying to get to them to come to an event. They're looking through the lens of your life to see who God is. We look through the lens of David's life and we see how God is merciful, compassionate, unfailing love, forgiving, and he restores broken people. Two more steps. The sixth step in the road of repentance, is to discover the key to true change. So David says in verse 16 and 17, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. So what is David saying? So what is the normal protocol for Israel? I sin, I offer a sacrifice. The sacrifice pays, in a sense, for my sin so that I can be reunited with God. But David says, you're not happy with that, God. 
You're not, you're not pleased with that. Why? Because what is a sacrifice? It's a sacrifice, in a sense, is I'm earning my way back into favor with God. But what does God really want from David? What does God really want from us in the process of repentance? He doesn't want a sacrifice. He doesn't want a resolution that says, I'm going to try harder and prove myself to be better and pay for my own sin. What does he want? He wants humility. He wants honesty. He wants brokenness. He wants a heart that comes to grips with what it's done. That's all he wants. He wants us to actually come to a place of fully embracing and acknowledging that we are broken. That's all he's expecting from us. That's what he wants to work with. Like, well, what, what, what is God going to do to change me? He just wants me to come to grips with that I can't change myself and I'm broken. Now, for each one of us, it may look different, but you have to ask yourself a question. Have I ever truly been broken in my life? Have I ever reached the end of myself? Have I ever come to a place in my life where I look at my life and all of my greatest intentions, all of my perceived victories and all the things that I've tried and all the failure that's happened, all of it amounts to absolutely nothing. See, that's where David came to. All of what David had done, he lost everything in this moment because his reputation was shot. His relationships were shot. Everybody knew it. But what did God expect of him? To earn his way back? No, just to be contrite, to be broken, and to own his sin and to be humble about it. There has to come that breaking point in all of our lives where we come to the end of ourselves because that's when God begins to change us. And for maybe this year, for some of us, that's what this year is about, coming to the end of myself. In my journey, that took a while. I was saved at six, but I didn't get to the end of myself until I was about 30 years old. That's how long it took me. I'm slow. And it had to come through a planting a church and realizing that all of my best efforts failed miserably. And I had worked hard for four years in planting a church, and I had done everything I was educated to do. I had gone to every seminar that I was supposed to go to. I had read every book. I had done every technique. And I was building my church and I remember to the point where I stepped down off the platform after one message and I thought in my mind, I will probably never do that again. And that afternoon we got in a car and we drove to Fresno and I was already beginning to be emotional and crying because anybody driving to Fresno, you would want to cry anyway. <laughs> Sorry if you're from Fresno. But the reason why is my, my parents are there. Only redeemable quality for me as far as I know is Fresno is because my parents are there and some of my family. And so we drove up to my, my, my parents' house and sat down, I can still see the couch, and sitting in my parents' living room, and for three hours, I sobbed without ceasing. I cried till I had nothing left to cry, because I had realized everything that I had attempted, everything that I even really had thought about God, I had manufactured in a way that was really putting me at the center of everything. I was the Lord of the church. I was the Lord of my life. Jesus was taking second place. And finally, when Jesus said, okay, you just walk that one out of your great intentions of how you're going to lead this church until you get to the end of yourself, which is the end of the road of resolutions, by the way, and you realize you can't do it. And it's only at that point that you and I wake up and realize, oh, God was right. I have to die to myself. I have to reach the end of myself because what does God want from me? He wants, oh, he wants my talent and my skill and my ability and my knowledge. And no, he wants somebody who says I'm broken. And I can't do this. I think all of us can do that, can't we? We can, but the hard part is I have to be honest. I have to be broken. I have to say, okay, I've reached the end of myself and I can't make this work. 
because that's when God begins to transform and change us. See, if you and I get to that point, for some of us, it takes us seeing the full impact of our sin, realizing that your sin is not just your sin, it affects other people. David's sin impacted his household and impacted another household and took somebody's life. He had to face that. I know Kim and I have had conversations, but one of the things that helped me to start to realize that I wasn't all that I was supposed to be is I realized when Kim and I got married and this thing called one flesh was happening where the two were becoming one, and so every decision that I made for myself would impact her. And when I would do selfish things and then I would watch the pain it would inflict on her, there was a wake-up call the first couple years of her marriage, like, wait a second, I can't live this way anymore. Because I realized that what I'm doing, what made me face some of my own sin in my life, was to see the pain that it caused her. And it opened my eyes. And it brought great change in my life. Because I realized I was broken. And God could change me. And then there's a final step that David gives to you and I. And then we're, we're going to conclude, conclude with uh, um, communion together. But that is in verses 18 and 19. Is that you and I get to embrace our future with God. So David says in verse 18, May it please you to uh, to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous and burnt offerings offered whole. The bulls will be offered on your altar. So what what is David talking about? So for the Jew or for Israel... The ultimate was Zion or, Israel, or Jerusalem or the city of God where God's presence would dwell. So for them was Jerusalem. So David is talking about this restoration. He's talking about once again, things will be right. I will be in relationship with you. Things will be as they're supposed to be. Sacrifices will be offered in worship to you as they should be. And so David is making this powerful statement because the, the end of the road of repentance is a beautiful place. It's a right relationship with God. It's having no debris or no cloudiness or no fuzziness or no shame or no guilt or no condemnation between you and God. It's just right before God. It's what John described when God gave him a vision in Revelation 21 where he says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. That's a future event that John describes in eternity. But you know what? Today is the first step that leads to eternity. Today is the first step that leads back into a right relationship with God so that you and I can experience what David experienced, that he experienced God's presence again, that he experienced a right relationship with God. He wasn't at a distance anymore. And because of that, God could change David. David was a different person after, after his failure, a different person after his restoration. He was different. Why? Because God had transformed him. Now, I'm, I'm not necessarily speaking prophetically because I don't have a sense of exactly what it's going to look like, but I know there's some powerful, dynamic change that God is going to bring in us this year. Not just as a church family, but the church is what? It's the building? No. The church is us. And if we aren't changing and we aren't repenting and we aren't being restored, then the future of our church won't change, won't be restored, will be the same. We can change addresses, but we can be the same. That would be the greatest tragedy of all. But if you and I look at this year, especially as we go through this month of January, the preparations that God wants us to embrace, to say, I am ready for whatever. If God is going to do something, I want to be right next to him, in right relationship with him, hearing his voice, feeling his presence, knowing what he's doing, so I can respond accordingly 
for what he wants to do through me. Let's go ahead and close our eyes. We're going to prepare ourselves in a moment to receive communion together. So I want your eyes closed just so as a point of focus and, and attention for what God may be speaking to you right now. In the next few moments, you and I get to experience in the physical is nothing more than juice and a cracker. But symbolically, it represents something that is so powerful, it will transform your life. And that is that in this journey called repentance, where we turn from the life that we used to live, we we face our sin and acknowledge that, we come to the end of ourselves and we begin to experience God's presence again. The reason that all can happen is because that thing called hyssop that David referred to, that that cleansing agent, that thing that would purify the leper, that would make them right again. We have that, but in a much greater scope. That comes to us through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. His death is the hyssop that cleanses our soul, that makes us right, that purifies us, and then once and for all will, will cure us from our sin. And that's what we remember when we receive these elements, that that we can be in a right relationship with God. We can be accepted by God. We can be forgiven. We can walk the road of repentance because what Jesus did, he has made a statement that in his love for us, he has taken our sin, our failure, our brokenness. He took David's lying, David's adultery, David's murder, and took it on himself on the cross. And then in exchange, as we turn from our sin, he gives us his righteousness. And so in these next few moments as we continue to worship, you are welcome at any one of those moments to go to one of the stations located around the sanctuary to receive those elements. But as you do that, I want you to keep in mind that maybe there's some different elements of what God wants to do today. I don't know, for, for some, maybe he wants you to come to face to face with your sin. Not as a way of demonstrating his anger or his punitiveness towards you that somehow he's going to push you away and say, ah, I caught you but as a way of saying, I want you to see your sin so that your heart will be broken, that your life will be humble, so that you can once again receive my forgiveness and be in relationship with me. Maybe for some of us, it's, it's coming once again to these elements of communion, where maybe we have felt a great disconnect from God. We have forgotten what it is to stand in his presence and to feel the warmth of his love come over us. And in these next few moments as we receive the elements that God would remind you of that. That this year, we need to walk closely with God. Our relationships need to be right with him. And what guarantees that and what secures that is what Jesus did did through his death and his resurrection, which we celebrate and we remember as we receive the elements this spring. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you that there, there is not just the option of the road that, of resolution that leads to frustration, discouragement, and repeats itself. There is the road of repentance that leads to your presence, to your redemption, and to true change and transformation in our lives. So Lord, help us to embrace that road this year as you prepare to do wonderful things in us and through us, as we obediently follow you. In your name, Jesus. Amen.